Book the Fifth, Part Nine of A Laodicean by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book the Fifth, Part Nine. It was midnight at Coblenz, and the travellers had retired to rest in their respective apartments overlooking the river. Finding that there was a moon shining, Paula leant out of her window. The tall rock of Engenbrechtstein on the opposite shore was flooded with light, and a belated steamer was drawing up to the landing stage, where it presently deposited its passengers. We should have come by the last boat so as to be touched into romance by the rays of this moon, like those happy people, said a voice. She looked towards the spot whence the voice proceeded, which was a window quite near at hand. Constancia was smoking outside it, and she became aware that the words were addressed to her. "'You left me very abruptly,' he continued. Paula's instinct of caution impelled her to speak. "'The windows are all open,' she murmured. "'Please be careful.' "'There are no English in the hotel except ourselves. "'I thank you for what you said to-day.' "'Please be careful,' she repeated. "'My dear Miss Ver "'Don't mention names and don't continue the subject.' Life and death perhaps depend upon my renewing it soon. She shut the window decisively, possibly wondering if Dutzansi had drunk a glass or two of Steinberg more than was good for him, and saw no more of Munit Ehrenbreitsen that night, and heard no more of Dutzansi. But it was some time before he closed his window, and previous to doing so saw a dark form at an adjoining one on the other side. It was Mr. Power also taking the air. "'Well, what luck today?' said Power. A "'Decided advance,' said Tzitzansi. None of the speakers knew that a little person in the room above heard all this out-of-window talk. Charlotte, though not looking out, had left her casement open, and what reached her ears saw her wondering as to the result. It is not necessary to detail in full Tzitzansi's imperceptible advances with Paula during that northward journey. So slowly performed that it seemed as if she must perceive there was a special reason for delaying her return to England. At Cologne one day he conveniently overtook her when she was ascending the hotel staircase. Seeing him, she went to the window of the Entresol landing, which commanded a view of the Rhine, meaning that he should pass by to his room. "'I have been very uneasy,' began the captain, drawing up to her side, "'and I am obliged to trouble you sooner than I meant to do.' Paula turned her eyes upon him with some curiosity as to what was coming of this respectful demeanour. Indeed, she said. He then informed her that he had been overhauling himself since they last talked, and had some reason to blame himself for bluntness and general want of euphemism, which, although he had meant nothing by it, must have been very disagreeable to her. But he had always aimed at sincerity, particularly as he had to deal with a lady who despised hypocrisy and was above flattery. However, he feared he might have carried his disregard for conventionality too far. But from that time he would promise that she should find an alteration by which he hoped he might return the friendship at least of a young lady he honoured more than any other in the world. This retrograde movement was evidently unexpected by the honoured young lady herself. After being so long accustomed to rebuke him for his persistence, there was novelty in finding him do the work for her. The guest might even have been hazarded that there was also, 
disappointment. Still looking across the river at the bridge of boats which stretched to the opposite suburb of Deutz, You need not blame yourself, she said, with the mildest conceivable manner. I can make allowances. All I wish is that you should remain under no misapprehension. I comprehend, he said thoughtfully. But since by a perverse fate I have been thrown into your company, you could hardly expect me to feel and act otherwise. Perhaps not. Since I have so much reason to be dissatisfied with myself, he added, I cannot refrain from criticising elsewhere to a slight extent, and thinking I have to do with an ungenerous person. Why ungenerous? In this way, that since you cannot love me, you see no reason at all for trying to do so, in the fact that I so deeply love you. Hence I say that you are rather to be distinguished by your wisdom than by your humanity. It comes to this, that if your words are all seriously meant, it is much to be regretted we ever met, she murmured. Now would you go on to where you were going and leave me here? That a remonstrance, he went on, saying with dejected whimsicality as he smiled back upon her, you show a wisdom for which so young a lady is perfectly surprising. It was resolved to prolong the journey by a circuit through Holland and Belgium, but nothing changed in the attitudes of Paula and Captain de Stancy, till one afternoon, during their stay at The Hague, when they had gone for a drive down to Chevenengen by the long straight avenue of chestnuts and limes, under whose boughs tufts of wild parsley waved their flowers, except where the Bootenplatz and of retired merchants blazed forth with new paint of every hue. On mounting the dune which kept out the sea behind the village, a brisk breeze greeted their faces, and a fine sand blew up into their eyes. Astancy screened Paula with his umbrella as they stood with their backs to the wind, looking down on the red roofs of the village within the sea wall, and pulling at the long grass which by some means found nourishment in the powdery soil of the dune. When they discussed the scene, he continued, It always seems to me that this place reflects the average mood of human life. I mean, if we strike the balance between our best moods and our worst, we shall find our average condition to stand at about the same pitch in emotional colour as these sandy dunes and this grey scene do in landscape. Paula contended that he ought not to measure everybody by himself. I have no other standard said Stancy, and if my own is wrong, it is you who have made it so. Have you thought any more of what I said at Cologne? I don't quite remember what you did say at Cologne. My dearest life, all his eyes rounding somewhat, he corrected the exclamation. My dear Miss Parr, I will, without reserve, tell it to you all over again. Pray spare yourself the effort, she said dryly. What has that one fatal step betrayed me into? Do you seriously mean to say that I am the cause of your life being coloured like this scene of grass and sand? If so, I have committed a very great fault. It can be nullified by a word. Such a word. It is a very short one. There is a still shorter one more to the purpose. Frankly, I believe you suspect me to have some latent and unowned inclination for you that you think speaking is the only point upon which I am backward. There now, it is raining. What shall we do? I thought this wind meant rain. Do stand on here as we are standing now. 
Your sister and my aunt had gone under the wall. I think we will walk towards them. You had made me hope, he continued, his thoughts apparently far away from the rain and the wind and the possibility of shelter, that you might change your mind and give to your original promise a liberal meaning in renewing it. In brief, I mean this, that you would allow it to merge into an engagement. Don't think it presumptuous, he went on as he held the umbrella over her. I am sure any man would speak as I do. A distinct permission to be with you on promotion. That was what you gave me at Karlsruhe. And flinging casuistry on one side, what does that mean? That I am artistically interested in your family history. She went out from the umbrella to the shelter of the hotel where she found her aunt and friend. Nostancy could not but feel that his persistence had made some impression. It was hardly possible that a woman of independent nature would have tolerated his dangling at her side so long if his presence were wholly distasteful to her. That evening, when driving back to The Hague by a devious route through the dense avenues of the Bosch, he conversed with her again. Also the next day, when standing by the Vichva, looking at the swans. And in each case she seemed to have at least got over her objection to being seen talking to him, apart from the remainder of the travelling party. Scenes very similar to those at Scheveningen and on the Rhine were enacted at later stages of their desultory journey. Mr. Power had proposed to cross from Rotterdam, but a stiff northwesterly breeze prevailing, Paula herself became reluctant to hasten back to Stancy Castle. Turning abruptly, they made for Brussels. It was here, while walking homeward from the park one morning, that her uncle for the first time alluded to the situation of affairs between herself and her admirer. The captain had gone up the Rue Royale with his sister and Mrs. Goodman, either to show them the house in which the ball took place on the eve of Quatre Bras, or some other site of interest, and the two powers were thus left to themselves. To reach their hotel, they passed into a little street sloping steeply down from the Rue Royale to the Place Saint-Gudule, where, at the moment of nearing the cathedral, a wedding party emerged from the porch and crossed in front of Uncle and Niece. "'I hope,' said the former, in his passionless way, "'we shall see a performance of this sort between you and Captain Stancy "'not so very long after our return to England.' "'Why?' asked Paula, following the bride with her eyes. "'It is, diplomatically, as I may say, such a highly correct thing, "'such an expedient thing, such an obvious thing to all eyes.' "'Not altogether to mine, uncle,' she returned. It would be a thousand pities to let slip such a neat offer of adjusting difficulties as accident makes you in this. You can marry more tin, that's true. But you don't want it, Paula. You want a name, and historical what do they call it. Now, by coming to terms with the captain, you'll be ladies to Stancy in a few years, and a title which is useless to him, and a fortune and castle which are in some degree useless to you, will make a splendid hole useful to you both. I thought it over, quite she answered, and I quite see what the advantages are. But how, if I don't care one atom for artistic completeness and a splendid whole, and do care very much to do what my fancy inclines me to do? Then I should say that, taking a comprehensive view of human nature of all colours, your fancy is about the silliest fancy existing on this earthly ball. Paula laughed indifferently, and her uncle felt that persistence was his nature, 
he was the wrong man to influence her by argument. Paula's blindness to the advantages of the match, if she were blind, was that of a woman who wouldn't see, and the best argument was silence. This was in some measure proved the next morning. When Paula made her appearance, Mrs. Goodman said, holding up an envelope, "'Here's a letter from Mr. Somerset.' "'Dear me,' said she blandly, though a quick little flush ascended her cheek. "'I had nearly forgotten him.' The letter, on being read, contained a request as brief as it was unexpected. Having prepared all the drawings necessary for the rebuilding, Somerset begged leave to resign the superintendence of the work into other hands. "'His letter caps your remarks very aptly,' said Mrs. Goodman, with secret triumph. You are nearly forgetting him, and he is quite forgetting you. Yes, said Paula, affecting carelessness. Well, I must get somebody else, I suppose. End of Book the Fifth, Part Nine